Alrighty, here we are again. Nice to be with you, Natalie. Yeah, you too. Happy Halloween. Yeah, thank you. It was it was grand. Happy Halloween to you as well. Thank you. I'm ready. I'm hoping that nobody rings the doorbell when we're when we're recording because my doorbell is really really loud. But have you got it set up with a spooky Halloween theme? No, my um my kid and our neighbor friend carved some pumpkins into some jack-o'-lanterns. But all of the scary animatronic Halloween decorations are across the street. You actually, if you were at my house right now, you could hear the screaming, and it's the animatronics. I've been complaining about it for the last month. <laughs> I'm so glad today is the day. <laughs> all right. So um, we want to talk about, I think it, this, is a, this is a kind of a, an assumption that is so prevalent throughout, not just the Pilates world, but the fitness world, and I would even say the physiotherapy world to a large extent, that it is sort of like so, so prevalent that it's almost invisible, um, which is that feeling a muscle working means it's getting stronger or Maybe uh, or also, you know, not feeling a muscle working means it's not getting stronger. Yes. Both of which turn out to be not true. Explain. <laughs> well, I think first I'd like to just talk about, I mean, the where this comes from. I mean, this is so, it reminds me of, it's so prevalent. It reminds me of the, the joke about the old fish who, you know, two young fish will swing past and the old fish said, morning boys, how's the water? And then one young fish turns to the other young fish and says, what's water? Yeah. And um, <laughs> it's almost like it's so, you know, almost basically kind of self-evident that we don't even consider that it's a, it's, it's a, it's an, it's, it's not kind of a law of nature or something. Um, that, you know, feeling a muscle is the same thing as it getting stronger. Uh, and it turns out it's just, it's like, yeah, there are so many reasons why it's not, um, it's not true. And I, I think, you know, so there, there's, there's good, I think it kind of intuitively does make sense though, right? So, I mean, when you, when you feel, you know, when you're doing an exercise and you can feel that muscle working, like it really, something wholesome about that. It feels like, oh yeah, I'm doing good. You know, it's like I'm eating my broccoli. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you know, why do you think it is such a, why do you think it is such a broad and almost invisible kind of assumption? Do you have a theory? I don't have a theory. In fact, I was going to ask you, why, why is this a thing? I just took it for granted when I, when I first trained. That's just what I learned. And I guess maybe the way that I learned it was, for instance, when you're doing a bridge, if you want to make your, work, your glutes work a little bit harder, just squeeze your glutes, you know? Or um, if you're doing a bicep curl, if you want to make your bicep work a little harder, slow down your bicep curl. And you start to feel something. 
And I just took that for granted. I, I did that for, I queued those things for a very long time. Uh, that if you just wanted to make something work harder or get stronger, that you just squeeze a little more until you feel it. Is that how you were taught back in the day? I was taught in a couple of layers that, you know, when I learned, I learned, you know, in Stop Pilates, the manuals they have on every exercise, there's a list of which muscles are active in the exercise. And it always starts with transversus abdominis to compress and stabilize the lumbopelvic region. Right? And then it says like, other muscles, whichever muscles are working in the in the movement, uh, you know, hamstrings to flex the knee, gluteus maximus to extend the hip, whatever it might be. And I think the first layer there is that, whilst I think, uh, as far as I can recall, all of those descriptions of which muscles are working in each exercise were factually correct. The fact that a muscle is working in a movement, like, doesn't tell you anything about whether that muscle is getting stronger or not. It's like, okay, as I you know, scratch my nose, my finger flexors are working, right? But I could scratch my nose for a year and they wouldn't get any stronger because there's just not enough load <laughs> on me in that situation. So the fact that, you know, when I'm doing, say, I don't know, a lunge or something, or even like, I don't know, the swimming exercise, for example, where I'm lying on my tummy and lifting my legs up and kicking. It's like, okay, the fact that my hamstrings are working in that exercise is a true fact. But it's like, you could probably do 10 million reps of that and not get stronger hamstrings. You know, there's just not enough load on the hamstrings in that situation. So so I think the, that's the first kind of point where confusion arises is we've conflated or kind of confused these two ideas or sort of smooshed them together of like, okay, if a muscle is working, you know, in, in other words, if, if a muscle is active, therefore it is getting stronger. And that's just simply not the case because the, you know, and I, I, hopefully I'm going to say this 50 times over the course of the, this episode is the, the only, the, 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 the only uh, definitively identified stimulus for muscle strengthening is high levels of mechanical tension on individual muscle fibers. And so there are lots of other things that might cause, uh, you know, stimulate strengthening, like a, tab uh, a metabolite accumulation, like, you know, when you get fatigued and you get some acid in your muscles and all that. That's been proposed as a, as a mechanism. There's not great evidence for that. There, you know, there's, lot, there's lots of other theories about what, you know, might cause muscles to get stronger, all of them either have been shown to be not true or have very poor or conflicting evidence or no evidence. There's, no, there's a lack of evidence. The, and every study pretty much that we have, you know, clearly shows that mechanical tension on muscle fibers is either the only or at least the main you know, stimulus for muscles to get stronger. So it's like there is no way around it. You have to have high levels of tension on the muscle fiber. And so whether the muscle is active like a finger flexor when I'm scratching my nose, it's like, okay, it's active, but it's, it's, there's no virtually zero stimulus for strengthening there. So I think that's the first point of confusion is where we conflate whether a muscle's active. You know, so if it's active, it's getting stronger, right? No, wrong. Well, and to your other example with swimming, which I think is a really hard exercise, I don't think I can do it for more than probably 45 seconds straight. 
And I totally feel certain muscles burning and I get really fatigued. But I think there's also a confusion between endurance and strength, you know, feeling a muscle burn versus and thinking that that's how the muscle is getting stronger. Because a lot of times, and I still hear this today, actually, I heard it today in um, in one of my tutorials where my students were doing a teaching practical and a lot of them were saying things like, feel the burn. Do you feel the burn yet? Do you feel the burn? And I, you know, so it's not, it's not wrong and they are probably feeling the burn, but that is not the same thing as a muscle getting stronger, right? The difference between endurance and strength. Well, so it's not even necessarily, well, I guess it kind of is endurance and strength, but the, the, this, the feeling the burn. So if we can agree that high levels of mechanical tension on individual muscle fibers are the key stimulus for strengthening, and I'll, and I'll whack a couple of citations in the in the show notes on that but you know i mean basically if you read like literally any exercise science textbook written in the last 10 years that's what it's going to say like this is not a controversial you know thing to say uh so you know high levels of mechanical tension uh, are the stimulus for strengthening when you feel the burn that is a result of uh working muscles at a sort of mm, mm, medium to high level of intensity, not maximal intensity for a relatively long period of time. So if you work sort of like for, you know, 30 to 90 seconds, say, you know, at a kind of 70% level of effort, you know, somewhere around that, you use an energy pathway for, to create, to, to, to liberate energy for that muscle contraction called anaerobic glycolysis. And that just means that we're burning um, glucose or glycogen in the cell uh, without the presence of oxygen. And one of the byproducts of that uh, metabolism, of that you know, liberating energy, is we produce uh, acid. We produce free hydrogen ions and we produce uh, lactate, both of which are acidic. And so the cell literally becomes acidic. And we have, um, uh, we have uh, free nerve endings around cells and nerve endings are specialised uh, to detect particular sensations, uh, particular uh, stimuli. So some nerve endings can detect pressure. Other different nerve endings can detect vibration. Different nerve endings can detect temperature. And then we have another set of nerve endings that can detect chemicals. Uh, and so the nerve endings that detect chemicals are stimulated when we have a lot of an accumulation of free hydrogen ions in the intracellular fluid, you know, from anaerobic glycolysis. And so those nerve endings fire and our brain perceives that sensation as burning because it kind of literally is burning so the acid is you know <laughs> going to eat you up <laughs> so it's probably an accurate representation so so an accumulation of free hydrogen ions in the cell as a result of anaerobic glycolysis leads to a sensation of feeling the burn whereas high levels of mechanical tension on individual individual muscle fibers leads to strengthening. And those two things are just completely separate things. It's like, you know, donuts and, you know, flying to Asia. You know, they're just different things. They're just not the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I know that I know this from my own personal experience, right? Because if I do 45 seconds of swimming, I will die from the burn. And then if I go and try to do a pull-up, you know, I can, there's no burning sensation when I can do my, I think I'm at like not my one rep max for a pull-up. I'm like at my 95% of one rep max. There's no, there's no sensation apart from just like feeling that it's really hard and then I can't do another one. 
Right. That's it. Right. When you when you work very close to your maximum, say it's sort of like 80, 85% or above of your maximum, so where you can do kind of like seven reps or fewer, right? So it's so, so hard that you can only do seven reps or fewer. You get maximum motor unit recruitment with full tension on all muscle fibers from rep number one. And because you you fatigue out after only five or six or seven reps, you don't get to that 30-second mark. So you're not using anaerobic glycolysis to any significant extent. So you actually don't get the burn. So you can have high levels of mechanical tension in the absence of feeling the burn. And by the same token, if you do something like really low intensity, like say sitting on a stationary cycle and cycling at kind of a moderate intensity for 10 minutes, you might get to a point where your thighs start to burn, right? But you could probably do that every day for a year and not get massively stronger in your quads because you're just simply not producing enough tension there at any one point in time. Now, that's not to say that feeling the burn means you're not getting stronger. It's possible to feel the burn and get stronger, just like it's possible to fly to Europe and eat a donut at the same time. It's just the two things are not correlated, right? So you you can... you. It, feeling the burn doesn't mean you're not getting stronger. It also doesn't mean you are getting stronger. It's just irrelevant to whether you're getting stronger or not. Which is so weird because it feels kind of you know, very virtuous and <laughs> and people really chase it. Like they, they feel like they haven't... I mean, I used to feel like, oh, if I'm not feeling the burn, it means I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not working out properly. Yeah. I was asking some of my Pilates friends, you know, what comes to mind when you hear the term muscle activation? And I got some really interesting answers. Um, And these are all people who were not trained at Breathe. They were just, they were trained at Stodd and other places. And it was just really interesting. So I asked them, you know, what does it mean to you when I say the words muscle activation? And, And also, why is this really important in Pilates? And I got some really interesting answers. And one of the ones that I wanted to talk to you about was the idea that strengthening aside the part of the the culture and part of the the practice of pilates is to have this mind body connection to be present in your body so one of my friends said for her she works with a lot of clients who are not very in tune with their body so her bringing focus to them feeling the sensations of their muscle working is actually the goal and and this this again is is not the same as wanting to use muscle feeling the muscle as you know saying that this is strengthening but for her she's like i want my clients to feel their muscles cuz a lot of them are so distracted by just modern life that they're they're so out of touch with their bodies and my husband actually said the same thing when i was asking him you know like what 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 is the what is the benefit of feeling your muscles working he's like well most of us just don't do that so it's kind of nice to be able to be in tune with your muscles. So I just, you know, what do you think about that? Like the idea that regardless of strengthening, some people, the goal is actually to feel your muscles working, whatever that means. Yeah, I've get, I guess I'm sympathetic to that uh, partially. Like I, I agree with the whole concept of a mind-body connection. I think that's very important. Uh, and essentially I would, categorize that as essentially a mindfulness 
you know, a, a mindfulness approach, right? So you're being present physically. And, you know, one way of achieving that could be to concentrate on the sensations you're feeling from your muscles. Another way could be to, you know, become aware of your breath. Another way could be to, you know, become aware of the sensation and pressing into the floor with various body parts or filling out your T-shirt or, you know, like there's lots of ways that you can become present and mindful of your, you know, physical experience of which paying attention to muscle sensations is one, you know, but not necessarily any better or worse than any other one in terms of bringing you into the present moment. So I think, yeah, I mean, okay, I can see that that's a valid way of inducing that mindful state. Um, however, I guess, I guess I'm going to say on reflection, as I'm just kind of thinking through this as I'm talking, that I think it's probably a less useful way than something like focusing on breath. Whereas it's like, I, I would say I'm pretty sure I've never met anyone who can't tell when they're breathing in or breathing out. Like, you know, everybody can figure out, okay, am I breathing in at the moment or breathing out at the moment? Like that, that's a pretty obvious thing for us all to, to notice about ourselves. Whereas I've met a shit ton of people who can't tell if their left piriformis is activating or not, you know, or the quadratus femoris or the lower fibers of their anterior left external oblique or whatever so so i think uh, and and i did a whole episode on on can we actually feel muscles activating um uh, you know half a dozen episodes ago and the conclusion is from a pretty exhaustive look at the scientific literature no we can't feel muscles activating because there are no free nerve endings in muscles that detect um you know essentially um activation we can detect tension we can detect uh, chemical changes and things that are the byproducts of muscular activation, but you can have tension by stretching a muscle, right? Even if the muscle's not active, you can have chemical. You know, if I inject your muscle with acid, it'll feel you'll feel the burn, but the muscle's not working. So the 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 perceptions that we have that come from our muscles don't directly that with the brain has no direct mechanism for sensing whether a muscle is active or not. We send the signal saying, hey, muscle, activate, but the muscle doesn't send a signal back going, yep, yeah, I'm active. So I think, you know, for, for many people, perceiving muscles activating is just very, either very difficult or impossible. And so I think as a mindfulness exercise, it might be much easier to concentrate on the breath or the sensation of pressing into the floor or the sound of your breathing or something, you know, like some some other thing that is, more universally accessible to, to humans. What, what do you think? I think that's really interesting and really helpful because it makes me think about what you just said where, you know, we can't, we can't know really if a muscle is working or not. Kind of th- makes me think about how um, I know not just for me, but for other people going to a physical therapist and being told that you have lazier dead muscles. I'm doing <laughs> the eye roll emoji right now. <laughs> you know, like dead butt syndrome. I was actually, I, uh, a while a long time ago, I was diagnosed with dead butt syndrome. Oh, no. My condolences. <laughs> it was devastating. <laughs> it was devastating to be told that, like, my ass was dead, yeah. you know? Well, you, that you, you can get a prosthetic for that now. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, yeah, and, I mean, where do we, where do we start with that? there's just, there's no, I think it comes from the same place, right? I think this notion of like, you know, 
lazy glutes or overactive quads or, you know, lazy whatever, you know. Like when I was in Stop Pilates, I learned, you know, all of the sort of good and bad muscles, you know, the muscles that typically are underactive slash lazy, you know, all of the kind of good muscles in quotes that we want to promote, you know, transverse abdominis, we need to focus on activating that because if, if left to its own devices, it's a shy shrinking violet and it'll just be overwhelmed by all those, you know, loud, boisterous obliques and rectus abdominis, you know, uh, and, the, you know, the poor old psoas, you know, we need to work on the psoas more and the, the deep neck flexors and the, the multifidus and the, you know, so there's all of these muscles, pelvic floor that we need to sort of you know, if if we don't consciously activate them, they're just going to basically sit there doing nothing like a dead fish, you know. Um, and then there's, there's these kind of like, you know, bad, quote, bad, end quote, muscles that's like are overactive in most people, like sternocleidomastoids in your neck or the tensor fascia latae in the hips or the, you know, the hamstrings in hip extension, they overactivate and my glutes don't work. Or, you know, like there's all of these, you know, the rectus abdominis takes over and the transversus doesn't work, you know, or the quads are overactive in a lunge and the glutes are underactive, you know, so we have all these kind of, this whole mythology built around certain muscles that are overactive and certain muscles that are underactive. And I, I hear all kinds of words around this on, still on social media, I see a lot of it, you know, we call it gripping or overactive or um, dominant or, you know, takeover or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, you know, so, uh, and I, I, I believe this probably arises from the sensation or lack of sensation that people feel in muscles and they go, oh, I'm doing a lunge. I can feel my thigh. So therefore my quads are working. I can't feel my butt. Therefore my butt is not working. Therefore my quads are overworking and my butt is underworking. Therefore my quads are dominant and my glutes are lazy, you know, when I'm doing a tabletop, I'm lying on my back with my knees bent, my hips bent, I can feel the front of my thighs, the front of my hips, so I can feel my rectus femoris, but I can't feel my psoas, which is like literally on the front of my vertebral column, you know, behind my, you know, uh, gastrointestinal tract. You know, so therefore my psoas is not working if I can't feel it, and therefore my, if I can feel my rectus femoris, it must be dominant and overworking, bad muscle, bad, bad. And so we we create these narratives, which again, because that's our physical experience, that kind of like intuitively makes sense, you know. Um, but it just turns out to be it's just not true because the ability to perceive a muscle working and whether it's working are just absolutely not the same thing, you know. We just don't have the capacity. Yeah. Okay. So for somebody who was told that they have lazy butts or dead butts, what can we do to awaken our butt? Well, you don't need to do anything to awaken your butt because it was never asleep in the first place. <laughs> it's just just damn fine. We've got copious amounts of um, EMG studies, so electromyographs. We put little electrodes on people's muscles, either with a fine wire or with just a surface you know, electrode pad. And then we measure the electrical activity in the muscle, which corresponds to the nerve um, impulse to the muscle, you know, st stimulating it to, to, to contract. Uh, and... We find that, you know, people with and without back pain have the same amount of glute activation. Uh, people, you know, with and without anterior pelvic tilt have the same amount of glute activation. You know, like, there's no, 
there's no rhyme or reason or pattern to people's, you know, glute activation such that, you know, less glute activation in a given movement equals more pain or less movement efficiency or whatever. Moreover, we find that in a lot of movements where, like when in Stop Pilates, I was taught in the Injuries and Special Populations course, this prone hip extension test where you lie on your tummy and then you lift one leg and your glutes meant to fire first. And if, you, if, you, if your hamstring fires first, that's bad, right? But if your upper traps fire first, that's terrible. It's like, oh, my God, yeah. you know, call an ambulance. You know? Yep. I remember that, too. I was trained that way, too. And I used to cue people when they would start to shrug their shoulders. I'd say, keep your shoulders out of this. Right. Make this movement happen from your butt. Right. Um, and so there's a, there's a great study by Lehman et al. where they actually got a whole bunch of healthy volunteers with no back pain or anything like that and just measured, put EMGs on their glutes and hamstrings and low back and whatever, and, and measured, you know, which muscles fired first. And they found it was basically glutes fired last in everyone except for one subject, you know, in these completely pain-free, healthy people. And so the idea that glutes should fire first in that particular movement is not true. Uh, and moreover, there was a range of when they fired, so in terms of like the, the time and the duration of onset, you know, when it fired, there was a range in, in pain-free people. It's like, oh, surprise, surprise. Pain-free people have a range of height, a range of weight, a range of eye color, a range of shoulder, you know, collarbone length, a range of, you know, eye, di- the distance part of our eyes. Like with, there's variation in every physical capacity that we have. So it's like, well, why wouldn't there be physical variation in the, when our glutes fire in that movement? And it, it turns out that, that, uh, you know, there is no optimal, single optimal, you know, pattern of muscle firing for a particular movement at a population level because we have different limb segment lengths, different muscle insertions, you know, different amounts of leverage. And also the, the muscle activation is load dependent. So as you increase the load, which muscles you activate change. Right, because you, you you produce more or less force. There's more or less leverage for different muscles. Uh, different muscles activate first depending on the range of motion involved. So if you're talking about hip extension, starting from deep hip flexion, the glutes probably will work harder. Whereas if you're starting from neutral and going into extension, the glutes probably won't work harder. If you're talking about running, you know, at a jogging speed, your glutes are base at walking speed. Your glutes basically don't turn on at all. Right, they you don't need them. They're not required. Um, as you start jogging, they start working a little bit, but still like basically, you know, you could jog a hundred miles and not fatigue them. Um, but as you start to run fast and get close towards sprinting, your glutes have become extremely active and there's a massive amount of load on them. So it's like, all right, my glutes aren't firing when I walk. It's like, yeah, that's, that's normal. So I think there's a, there's a, there's a wide there's a very large amount of variability and nuance in which muscles activate in any given movement, depending on the speed, the load, the body position, just the proportionality of the person in terms of their limb segment lengths, their, which you know muscles have more fast twitch fibers versus slow twitch fibers, you know, etc. <laughs> so it's like we can't say in bird dog your glutes should fire before your hamstring. It's just not a thing you know we can say with it based on any facts or information that we have. So I think this whole notion of, you know, a muscle should fire in this exercise is just not true. I mean, I think we can say there are some 
exercises where we can say, yes, a muscle should fire. But these are like the super obvious ones where everyone's going to like go, well, duh. It's like, okay, in a sit-up, your rectus abdominis should fire. Yeah. All right. If it doesn't, that means you're literally paralyzed from, you know, the chest down. So if it doesn't fire in a sit-up, you literally can't do a sit-up. <laughs> so, um, and, and, you know, in a, in a cough, when you cough or, or yell, your transversus has to fire. And if you, if your transversus is paralyzed, you literally can't cough, you know? So, so yes, there are certain movements where we can say, yes, the muscle should activate, but it's like, well, if you can do that movement, it's activating, right? If you can stand up out of a deep squat, your butt is working because if it wasn't, you couldn't. Yeah. I've been having to say that a lot to um, my clients. I, so I work with clients in a hospital setting and most of them have multiple sclerosis. So for some of them, they do have muscle activation issues having to do with neurological issues. Um, but then a lot of them have been told that they have really weak cores. And I, I have said to them on so many occasions, you know, actually you're a lot stronger than you think because in my mind, when I see somebody with a weak core, they, they can't cough and they can't sit up. And I actually have worked with people who, you know, just trying to hear them cough is so, it makes me suffer to have to hear them because they can't get the force that they need to get out what they need to get out. And then they also can't sit up and they have to be essentially belted to their wheelchair. Um, but by and large, if you, can, if you can sit up and move around, I think your core is all right. And you can definitely make your core stronger, right? Sure, you can this, make anything stronger. Yes, you can. I wish that I'd had this conversation with you 10 years ago when I was uh, diagnosed with dead butt syndrome because the way that I was um, made to rehabilitate my butt was to get into sideline clamshell position. And then before I could even open my top knee to make the clamshell shape, I would have to focus on my side butt and make sure that I felt it fire first before I let my knee open. And if I didn't do that, I'd have to do it over again. So I got really, really good at like twitching my side butt muscle before opening up into my clamshell. And then I went out and I taught it to a whole bunch of people for years and years and years. <laughs> oh boy. I've taught that. I've taught that move. And, um, but there's a whole literature actually on, glute activation drills because this is such a big thing outside of Pilates as well as inside of Pilates. And it's pretty conclu pretty conclusively shows that glute activation drills don't increase glute activation. So if you do like eight weeks of glute activation drills, you know, and measure your glute activation in say, I don't know, a lunge or whatever before or after, no change. No change. I mean, you get better at doing the glute activation drills. You get better at, you know, experiencing a, a perception of your glute working right? Because that's really what a glute activation drill is, is about you experiencing a perception of your glute working. It's like, which has almost nothing to do with whether your glute's working or not, because as we said, you, there are no, we have no mechanism in the body for telling the brain whether a muscle's working or not. We can sense tension, we can sense chemical changes, temperature, vibration, pressure, but we can't sense activation per se. Um, so if you can, if you go, if you start, if you can't sense your muscles working and then you practice for eight weeks and now you can sense your muscles working, well, all you've done is create an illusion in your mind of, you know, believing something, or maybe you're better now at sensing tension, you know, uh, in the muscle. Um, 
but it's like, well, what's the benefit of sensing tension in the muscle? It's like the, the tension's there whether you sense it or not. You know, the tree falls in the forest, makes a sound whether you hear it or not. So it's like, yeah, and then you do your lunge eight weeks later. It's like, no, the glutes don't activate any more or any less than they did, you know, <laughs> before all yeah. those glute activation drills. So, yeah, it's 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 so – it's such a weird thing. I mean, this is – this whole notion, we could basically just stop doing it and there would be like zero ill effects, mm-hmm. you know. Just no, yep. no one ever mentioned muscle activation again. The world would be fine. Yeah, I. Um, that's what I did. <laughs> I just stopped talking about it, and I stopped worrying about it. That to me was the hard part. It was I was worried about it. Like if somebody tells you that something in your body is dead, that's cause for concern. It's cause for concern. It's very nocebic, and I worried about it quite a lot. And I was just so worried about my dead butt. Yeah, I was like, you wouldn't, you don't want images of your butt kind of turning black and becoming gangrenous or <laughs> necrotic, know. you know? <laughs> it's true. But it also makes me think, you know, like you said, it's so pervasive. We don't, we, we take it for granted. And it think, it makes me think about when we're, when we're with clients, teaching clients, and they always say, where should I be feeling this? And that, to me, is just part of this whole conversation, the fact that they're asking, they're wondering, they're worrying, you know, where should I be feeling this? I mean, I think, you know, my interpretation of that question is, yeah, absolutely, like you say, we've trained them to ask that question because we've told them the last 999 times they didn't exercise, you should be feeling this in your X muscle. And so now we, you know, they, they think that's what they should be focusing on. But I think essentially the the deeper question that they're asking is like, am I doing this correctly? You know, and 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 so I think that's a that's a fair enough question. Um, but I think that the answer isn't you should be feeling it in your blah, blah, blah muscle. The answer is like, well, here's how to know if you're doing this correctly. If your back is straight and your legs are straight and the carriage is moving in and out or the whatever, like whatever the criteria of success are in that exercise, well, that's how you know if you're doing it correctly, right? If your hips are staying still and your legs, legs moving, you're doing it correctly. If your you know, body's one straight line from head to toes, you're doing it correctly. Um, yeah, so those those sorts of things. Um, in in terms of like, you know, that question, like, like where should I be feeling it? I just think it's, yeah, I mean, I really think we should, you know, if I had a magic wand <laughs> that I could wave and just eliminate that whole conversation, I just think it's not a useful thing to focus on and you know if you ask joseph pilates that you know from what i've heard he would just like ah, shake his head and say it's for the body you know like <laughs> um you know he, he never mentions like specific muscles in his book you know once or twice he sort of says oh this exercise is good for the arm or this exercise is good for the stomach or something you know in a, as a passing comment right he never says you should activate your whatever muscle. Never, never, never says that. In fact, he specifically says we shouldn't focus on this or that pet set of muscles, right, rather than the uniform development of the body as a whole. And almost all of those original controlling exercises are whole body exercises. They're not isolation exercises to target this or that pet set of muscles because Joseph was dead against <laughs> targeting this or that pet set of muscles. So it's like what astounds me and just – perplexes me is how did we get from that you know from joseph saying like it's a whole body you know it's about whole body movement 
It's not about focusing on this or that pet set of muscles. It's about the integration of the whole body, you know, and uniform development of the whole body. It's like, how do we get from that to it's all about activating this or that pet set of muscles, you know, transversus, pelvic floor, glutes, psoas, deep neck flexors, you know, lower trapezius, you know, like how did we go from to the exact opposite of what Joseph's original vision was? Like, do you have, do you have any insights he could share on that? What are your thoughts? I mean, I'm going to guess because I don't know for sure. My guess is that when uh, Pilates became more mainstream and when Pilates met with the physical therapy world, um, it was this match made in heaven. And all of a sudden, you know, we started to use really anatomical terms and wanted to sound really legit and smart. That's that's my theory. That's my jaded theory. I think you're probably right. Um it's just it's it's it just blows my mind though. Um, I'm just going to read here from uh, Pilates' Return to Life Through Contrology, originally published in 1945 by Joseph H. Pilates, uh, and I'm going to quote here from page eight. Um, quote: This does not necessarily imply that we must devote ourselves only to the mere development of any particular pet set of muscles but rather more rationally to the uniform development of our bodies as a whole. End quote. Right? So, like, he literally says, don't focus on individual muscles. But, and now, you go online pretty much anywhere, and you can have someone telling you that if you're not focusing on individual muscles, it's not Pilates. Right? So it's like, how did we... It's a 180... It's going from, like, black is now white... You know, like it's yeah, it's, it's yeah, so it's really interesting. It is bizarre. I mean, and you know, there, there are lots of things that I don't agree about with Joseph Pilates, but one thing that I do agree with is that he was he was uh, someone who looked at the forest rather than the individual trees, and I really like that because for me in my own teaching practice, the simpler I can get things, the better it is for me and for everybody else. Just focus on just focus on moving the body, and for a lot of people, you know the where you feel a muscle is so subjective it's really personal for all the reasons that you said based on the way that their body is positioning and their morphology and lots of things maybe that's just where they feel it and at the end of the day it's just like can we can we relax a little bit and just keep moving and if you actually want to get somebody stronger let's talk about how we actually can do that how do we actually get people stronger yeah well if you if you want to um reanimate your dead butt um the way to do it is put the you know put the body in a position such that that muscle is the prime mover for the movement right so if you go into a deep lunge and then you can stand up out of that lunge without like hauling yourself up with your hands or, or whatever. Well, your butt is working 100% guaranteed. Like, oh, yeah. I, you know, I guarantee it. And, and I mean, this is a simple experiment that, that everyone can do at home, in fact. Uh, and, and the easiest way to test this is with the abs, right? So, you know, when I've, I've many times been in a Pilates class where I've been told, like, make sure I engage my abs when I'm in a plank, for example, or make sure I engage my abs when I'm doing a roll up or a hundred or whatever. It's like, all right, well, if you 
lie on your back and curl forwards, you know, so your, your chest is lifted and your shoulder blades are just, bottom of your shoulder blades are just resting on the mat. And then you lift your legs, straight legs, lift them up a few inches off the floor, okay? And I challenge you, if you're at home, to do that whilst relaxing your abs. So start by lying on your back, full length, head on the floor, feet on the floor, everything relaxed. Put one hand on your tummy, feel, you know, poke your tummy, feel your tummy relaxed, make your tummy nice and relaxed, do big Buddha belly. Now keep your belly relaxed and lift your legs off the floor, right? And I, I, you'll find it's not possible. It is not possible. If you can lie on your back and lift your legs off the floor, your abs are on. And same, if you can lie on your back and lift your head off the floor, your abs are on. And so if you can stand up out of a deep lunge, your glutes are on. It's like if your glutes weren't on, you couldn't do that movement. So that's the, that's how you solve for somebody's you know muscles activate. If you want to uh, make sure that someone's muscles are activating, it's like put them in a position where the muscles have to activate, right? And so right. for glutes, that's going to be a deep lunge or a deep squat under load. It's going to be a loaded. Uh, abduction, you know, like so heavy spring side splits or a crab walk with a, a banded, you know, band around the knees or side leg lifts with a band around the knees or an ankle weight or something like that. Um, you know, so basically it's like if you want to target certain muscles, well, all you need to know is like, well, what position do I need to put the body in so that that muscle has to work? Otherwise you can't do the movement. So if I can see if I can see you lifting your legs, I don't have to ask you if your abs are on, because <laughs> I know that if they weren't, you wouldn't be able to lift your legs, right? So, so all you have to know is like, okay, well, what are the movements that activate the glutes? What are the movements that activate the deep neck flexors? What are the movements that activate the psoas or whatever? If if you know, and it's like, well, I would ask you like, well, why do you need to activate the psoas in particular, or you know, whatever? <laughs> but. <laughs> If you did want to uh, particularly activate certain muscles or strengthen certain muscles, you just have to know what their action is and then just do that against load. It's that simple. Yeah. My solution to my dead butt syndrome is uh, pistol squats. I don't need to add more load. I'm heavy enough <laughs> to try to get up from a pistol squat. Yeah. Right. And that's deep hip flexion. That's like end range hip flexion under full body weight for a single leg, right? That is a great glute exercise. It's also a great inner thigh exercise. It's also a great quad exercise. Right, which is exactly what I mean about stop focusing on the tree and focus on the forest because there's so many exercises that are good for so many things. I think we also have this, we have kind of a zero-sum mindset when it comes to muscles. So we think, what I mean by that is, we think like, okay, if I, if, if one muscle's working harder in a movement, that means the other muscle's working less hard, right? So there's only a certain amount of load to go around. If we, if we, if we're, if our quads are working more, that means our glutes are working less. Uh, and the logic is plausible on that, but the 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 reality is, if you add more load, all muscles work harder, right? So if 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 you did a pistol squat with a kettlebell, it's like your quads would work harder and your glutes would work harder. And so just the fact that the quads are working harder doesn't mean that the glutes can't also work harder. So it can be, it doesn't have to be either or, it can be and, you know, you, your quads can work harder and your glutes and adductor magnus can also work harder. Um, so yeah, so whether one, yeah, and conversely, 
if one's working less hard doesn't mean the other's working more hard. You know, so it's it's going to be like if you can't get up out of a pistol squad if your quads aren't working hard. I mean, it involves maximal loaded knee extension from a fully flexed position. So it's like, well, I'm sorry, if you deactivate your quads, <laughs> you're going to be stuck at the bottom there. So your glutes won't get the chance to work because your glutes will just extend your hip and tip you over backwards, right? Because if your knee's not extending when your hip's extending, you're not actually going to stand up. You're just going to flip your torso backwards. And so it's like, no, well, if you're standing up, that means your quads are working and your hip extensors are working, right? Because if your quads just worked, right, but your hip extensors didn't work at the bottom of a pistol squat, well, your knee would straighten, but your hip wouldn't extend, right? So you would just like push yourself over forwards. So, yeah, so really it the the knowledge that's important here, I think, is just what movements are going to load certain muscles you know, whether or not the person can feel the muscles is completely irrelevant. Um, you know, you do three sets of 10 pistol squats to failure three times a week for six months, you're going to have a strong butt. I mean, yeah, I don't care if you can feel it or not. What about the idea that if I'm not sore, then, uh, you know, if I don't experience DOMS, then I didn't actually have a good workout? What's the, what's the explanation behind that? DOMS? is delayed onset muscle soreness, which you feel after an unaccustomed workout, particularly an unaccustomed eccentric workout where the muscle's lengthening during underload. Uh, and there's something called the repeated bout effect, which means that uh, the, the second workout you have within a week, it has a, you have much less DOMS, right? So if you've never done a particular activity before, just say you've never done Pilates before, and then you come along to a Pilates class, you probably get DOMS, you know, probably in your abs, probably in your inner thighs, you know, wherever you work, right? But then if you do Pilates again, like four days later, you'll get much less DOMS. And by the time you're doing Pilates twice a week for, you know, two months, it's like you basically won't get DOMS unless you do something unaccustomed. And uh, unaccustomed might be, uh, you know, doing something, doing like weightlifting instead of Pilates or something like that. Or it might just be doing new Pilates exercises that you've never done before. Right, so just doing something. So if you if you've done a lot of floor work, you know the hundreds and whatever, and then you go and do like the short box series on the ladder barrel, where you're doing like ab work in full spine extension with your round back and hug a tree and all that, and you you haven't worked your abs in that range of motion, it's like that's an unaccust unaccustomed workout, right? So you probably will get DOMS from that in your abs, um, but if you do that a couple of times a week for a couple of weeks, like the DOMS will stop. And so we don't exactly know what causes DOMS. Some people think it's an accumulation of um, calcium ions in the muscle cells. Some people, you know, think it's muscle damage, although that theory is kind of doesn't really fit the fact because we can see that muscle damage recovers uh, at a different speed than DOMS. So, you, you know, DOMS can linger whilst muscle damage is repaired and vice versa, muscle damage can linger whilst DOMS goes away. So uh, it do, it, it's not necessarily the same thing. So... Yeah, we're not really sure what causes DOMS, um, but it again, it doesn't have anything. It, it's not a, it's not a, it's not an indicator of whether you're getting stronger or not. Because if you, you know, that first workout where you've never done Pilates before and you do it like 
you get DOMS and you're getting stronger, right? So both those things happen at the same time. But if you keep doing that same workout twice a week for a month, you basically will get zero DOMS at the end of that. But if you're still pushing towards you know, your maximum limit, you'll be getting stronger, right? So you can get stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. I, I mean, I pretty much never get DOMS these days unless I do a different exercise I haven't done before, like I, I haven't done for a while. Um, yeah, so... The fact that you got DOMS doesn't tell you whether the exercise, whether the workout was effective or not. It tells you whether it was unaccustomed or not, Yeah, which is just a different thing. It's just a different thing. I love DOMS. <laughs> I do. Well, I mean, I think there's, you know, and we did an episode on DOMS like ages ago, and I think people do, and so I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, although I've, you know, spent the last whatever time we've been talking, 49 minutes, talking about, you know, all right, if no one ever talked about muscle activation again, you know, that wouldn't be a bad thing. Um, and, you know, feeling the burn is not correlated with whether you're getting stronger and feeling DOMS is not correlated with whether you're getting stronger. They're just completely unrelated thing. or not completely unrelated, unrelated but largely unrelated things. Um, however, given that we're operating in a cultural zeitgeist where, Almost everybody is like, what's water? You know, almost everybody is like, okay, of course, when you feel the burn, that means it's working. And of course, when you get DOMS, that means it's working. Then I personally don't see any problem with taking advantage of that uh, to give your clients evidence that your classes are effective, even though the burn and DOMS are not actually evidence that the class is effective they, people will perceive it as evidence that the class is effective. Um, but so if you want people to actually get stronger, you need to put them in positions where those muscles have to work under load, right? So if you want the glutes to get stronger, you need to do like deep loaded hip flexion or heavy abduction, right? So heavy side split, splits, um, you know, pistol squats, you know, whatever it might be, right? And they may or may not feel that, Right but that will get them stronger. And if you want them to feel their butt, well, there are a few things you know that you can do. You could do sideline legs in straps on reformer. You could do clams. You could, you know, there are various things you can do that are going to like reliably get people to feel a burning sensation in their butt because we do have free nerve endings that can sense chemical changes in those muscles. And so, you know, when you accumulate free hydrogen ions, you know, almost everyone can feel it. So, um, if you do, say, some pistol squats for actual strengthening and then some clamshells for perceived strengthening, then you'll get actual and perceived strengthening. You know, the client thinks they're getting stronger and they are, in fact, getting stronger. Um, and then if you just introduce some novel exercises, so every every week you might do like, you know, one heavily loaded exercise for that muscle, say a pistol squat, Right, that's actually going to strengthen it, and you can. It's important to keep doing the same exercise because then you can you can measure when you're getting stronger, right? So when you can do an extra rep, that means you're getting stronger. You can add more load as you need to, and then you do your clamshells, you know, every day. So the client is like, oh yeah, I can really feel my butt working. This must be what's making my butt strong. And then you do one unaccustomed exercise, so you switch it up every week, right? So every, yeah, this week we're going to do uh, heavy side splits. Next week we're going to do heavy lunges. Next week we're going to do heavy uh, hip extensions, 
um, with a with a strap, you know, kneeling on the box on the reformer, and just keep switching it up. So we're always doing something the muscle's not used to. So we'll always get some DOMS. Okay, we'll always have the burning sensation in our butt when we're doing our clamshells, and we'll actually get stronger because we're doing our, um, you know, pistol squats or whatever sort of loaded hip extension you're doing. And so that way you kind of get to eat your cake and have it too, right? And the clients, you know, goes home and tells their friends, oh, I can always really feel my butt working in Natalie's class and my butt's always sore the next day and I'm getting so much stronger and my jeans fit better now. And like, you know, they'll have all of the evidence. So I'm, you know, that, that would be the, that would be the, the, the approach I would take. But I would never say, I would never say something untrue, like, you know, when they're doing their clams, oh, the fact that you can feel this means it's really working, right? I, I don't need to tell them that because they already, quote, know that. Mm-hmm. What, where do, how do you stick with um, telling little white lies or lies of omission <laughs> to our clients? I like your plan. I really like what you did. You, you heard it here, folks. Here's the, here's the strategy is you actually do something that makes the, them stronger and then you do something else that makes them think that they're getting stronger. I really like that. Um, because I think it is absolutely part of our job. It That's not part of our job. It's a really effective teaching strategy to meet your clients where they're at and to play with their expectations. And feeling the burn, having DOMS, all of those things, I think for them is just psychologically very satisfying. It is for me. It is for me, like I've been working with you and listening to you for years now. And I understand that DOMS doesn't necessarily mean I'm getting stronger, but do I like it? Yeah, I do. I feel like I've done my my due diligence for my body when I wake up the next day and I'm like, oh yeah, I can feel it. I can feel it in certain places. So yeah, I'm with you. I um I actually try very hard not to educate my clients very much anymore. I just don't. I used to. I used to, way back when, I would name all the muscles, I would use all the fancy terminology, and I have gone the exact opposite route now. I just focus on movement. I A lot of what I'm talking about is the things that I love seeing, you know, the things that my clients are doing right. Uh, if I feel like my clients are coming in and they're just like, oh, I have weak cores, I really want to work my core. My strategy is to save the ab series for last in the class so that they f- leave feeling it. Peak end rule. So I'll, yeah, I'll do the whole class. And then at the end, it's just like, okay, get on your backs. We're going to do the ab series. And um, I just make them die in the ab series and then do a really, really quick cool down. And it's just like, bye. And they're just like, oh, my abs. And you know, like, it's, I just want to give them what they want and they are happy for it and they come back for it and they keep trying hard and they love it. And, and so, yeah, I don't even know that it's white lies or lies of omission. I just, my teaching strategy is to just not talk to them about the technicalities of anatomy and biomechanics unless they ask. Otherwise it's just like, let's just have a really fun time. Mm. All right. Well, I mean, I, I'm happy to go along with you. It's not a lie of omission. I mean, the, apparently shampoo doesn't need to foam to clean your hair and that the foaming is just a placebo that helps us all feel like we're doing a good job of cleaning our hair with it. It sure does work for me. 
I, I wouldn't want non-foaming shampoo. And um, yeah, I've also heard, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've also heard that the when you press a button in the elevator to close the doors, it doesn't actually do anything. <laughs> it just makes you feel like you've got some control over the situation. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. So yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, and the, the minty taste in toothpaste, right? The active ingredient is not mint. The active ingredient is fluoride. So, you know, with or without mint, it's still going to do just as an effective a job of protecting your teeth. So the minty taste is just, again, it's a placebo to make us feel like we've cleaned our teeth and they're clean because mint feels clean, you know. So I think, okay, well, the burning sensation is like the foaming in shampoo or the minty sensation in toothpaste. It's not strictly technically necessary, but it's probably going to increase adherence and enjoyment of the class and people sense that they're doing something worthwhile, so they're more likely to come back. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and by the way, like the minty toothpaste is really important to me. Do you, do you know, when you go to the dentist, do you get, do, do they give you options, you know, like for fluoride? They'll say, do you want strawberry? Do you want bubble gum? Do you want mint? And I'm just like, what are you talking about? Of course I want mint. I want the real stuff. No, I want your dentist. They never give me an option. Oh, just, yeah. I, like, in fact, I don't even think it's mint, the one they give me. It's just like this kind of weird gel that they paint on your teeth and then yeah, I don't yeah, but it, it doesn't have flavor. flavor. I don't recall. Oh that. man, yeah. that's too bad. That's too bad. We have flavored fluoride. With and, and actually, my kids' dentists—they are very uh, picky about the language that they use. So they don't call it fluoride; they call it vitamins. Vitamins for your teeth. Well, typically, so, it's, technically, it's not actually a vitamin. Yeah, no, I think it's a mineral. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but they call them vitamins for your teeth, and they 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 tell the parents like. Don't call it fluoride. We, we want them to, you know, like show us their teeth and get this stuff put on. So, yeah. No, I I'm, I, I think all of those things are really important. Most people, I feel like, well, not most people. I, I'm just, most of my clients, they're not coming to Pilates for me to educate them. They are coming to Pilates because they believe Pilates will help them feel stronger and avoid pain and live better lives. And I'm happy to provide that for them if they ask me questions about, where where should I be feeling it? Typically, I just turn that around and I ask them, where are you feeling it? And when they say, oh, I feel it here, and then I'll ask somebody else, where are you feeling it? And my, my hope is that someone else gives a different answer because I want them then to hear me say, you're all correct. You're feeling it where you need to be feeling it. You're feeling it where your body is doing the most work. And you know, you know I, I feel like one of the things that we've gotten away from in Pilates land is the idea that we can trust our bodies and our brains to do what it needs to do and recruit the muscles it needs to recruit for the task at hand. We stop trusting our bodies to do that, I think. Uh, so for me, the idea that we don't have to worry about it so much and just load things, you know, if you're not feeling your butt, it's not dead. It's just you're not giving it enough load or you're not putting it in the proper position. So play around with load and positioning well, even and don't if worry you, about it. Even if you put it in the proper position under a lot of load, you may not feel it, but it will be working. Yeah. Good talk. Good talk. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. 
two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.